Today's reading from the Word of God comes from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Please follow along in your own Bibles, on the screen behind me, or listen as I read the scriptures. Once again, that's Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. At that time, children are invited to join Kids Crew through the door on your right. Hear the word of the Lord. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There I am. I was like, did I? It's a really tiny switch. Good morning, church. Oh, thanks. Uh, first of all, thanks, Jess and the music team. She asked for some, like, yeah. Thank you. Um, she absolutely nailed the music today, like the choices. So we'll look forward to that. 
My name is Amy Hughes. Um, my husband Benji and I have been at this church for almost eight years. You've likely seen our son Ezra running all about. He's four. So I'm thrilled to be here with you all this morning. So it's our custom to begin our time together with a bit of silence to center ourselves. So let's give ourselves a moment to settle, invite the Holy Spirit to meet us, and then I'll open with a very short and very old prayer from Athanasius of Alexandria from the 4th century. So. You are Jesus son of the Father. You are he who commands the cherubim and seraphim. You have existed from the Father in, with the Father in truth always. You rule the angels. You are the power of the heavens. You are the crown of the martyrs. You are the deep counsel of the saints. You are the mouth of the prophets. You are Jesus, my life. Amen. So I want to tell you a bit about my scholar self this morning to give you some context for where we're going to be going. So I'm a historical theologian of early Christianity. Um, I teach over at Gordon College. So a historical theologian of early Christianity, it's a mouthful, so let me break that down for you, like what that actually is. So my job as a historical theologian is to listen to the great cloud of witnesses throughout history and to help the church of today to hear them well. That's my job. I specifically spend my time with the first 500 years uh, of Christian history, when the church was growing rapidly, so rapidly that Christians were basically building the plane as it flew, holding it together MacGyver style. Do half of you in this room get that reference? Okay, yeah, so I feel really old. Um, so like the ancient version of duct tape, a paperclip, and a lot of prayer and love so the first 500 years saw the formation of the New Testament, from a bunch of letters touring the Roman Empire into what you've got in your lap or on your phone. This time also included periods of intense persecution and martyrdom. The Roman Empire didn't take kindly to those who thought they thought might be undermining the empire and its gods, so the Christians experienced immense bias, persecution, and some even died in very gruesome ways. This was the world of Emperor Constantine, who fought under the banner of the Christian God and changed the course of history for the relationship between church and state. Christians were figuring out what they believe, and they convened a bunch of councils to come to terms and to formulate the creeds that we still say today. This was the world of the super intense and devoted who chose to live their lives alone in caves for decades on end, or who gathered together creating the first monasteries. It was also the world of ordinary people trying to figure out this Christian thing in a diverse community with intersecting cultures and contradicting ideas and a fraught political environment. I don't know. Sounds like they might be kindred spirits. And this is what captures me, the kindred spirits that the same Holy Spirit that is present among us now is speaking and working through these people. Through their writings and stories, I have found companions 
among this great cloud of witnesses. They have helped me come to know Christ more deeply, stoked my love for Scripture to burn brighter, and have inspired me with their love and their bravery. So this season, we're, con- we're continuing our sermon series called Mosaic, Many Voices of God's Unified Story. And in this sermon series, we've had the privilege of hearing from preachers and ministers, and now y'all get me, a theologian, so for some of you, I apologize, you know, we'll see, um, to share about God's redemptive story and how that applies to us today. So I want to introduce you to one of my closest companions today to help us to do one thing to come to know Christ better. That's it. That's what we're going to do. To know Christ better through someone I hope will be a new companion for you all, too. Before I introduce our companion, let's return to that passage that Shilpa read for us in Philippians 2, 1 through 11. So this passage is one of the most important passages in the New Testament because it helps us to understand who Christ is and what Christ came to do. So this whole passage is important and gorgeous. It's one of my favorites. And I'm going to focus on two sections of it specifically this morning. Christ as slave. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, But in humility, regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. The second person of the Trinity did not consider equality with God, his status and power as God, as something to be exploited. God's power is displayed in relinquishing that status and power to become not sort of like us, but just like us. God becomes human, a human who lived in a particular time and place without antibiotics or toilets or social media, a Jew, a tradesman who lived in a backwater town called Nazareth under a brutal empire an empire that was at best suspicious of people like him and was always ready to to respond with extreme violence. So Philippians 2.7 says that God in Christ took the form of a slave. A doulos, a slave. So this word is sometimes translated as servant. You know, maybe when you were opening your Bible earlier, and you were like, okay, this is a little bit different of a translation. I was very particular on which one I chose this morning. It's the word for slave, okay? Servant is not incorrect, but it is definitely euphemistic. In the Roman Empire, slaves were not human. They were things to be used. Dulos indicates total subservience, a person owned by another. Dulos is not in control of the system that they are in. Dulos is is deemed worthless, having no inherent value or any meaningful contribution. Dulos is deemed unseemly, ugly, not fit for society, and not memorable. Dulos is deemed as deserving of contempt. Jesus Christ the second person of the Trinity, became a 
the worthless, unseemly, and despised. And Scripture emphasizes this point elsewhere, most directly in the Christian reading of Isaiah 53. Here's one portion of that passage. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, nothing in his, in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity. And as one from whom others hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him of no account. Philippians 2, 1 through 11 is one of the most studied sections of Paul's letters. So there are some different reads of this passage that try to unpack what it means for the God of the universe to take on the form of a slave. Today, I'm going to bring in a bit of how the early great cloud of witnesses read this passage, specifically a martyrdom text. Martyrdom texts are stories written about those who died for the faith. They are, there are many of them throughout history, and they continue to be written today. We throw the word martyr around a lot, but here's what we mean when we talk about a Christian martyr. Okay? A martyr is someone who, number one, is targeted by a government or other group that is acting like a government because they are Christian. That's why they're targeted, okay? And number two, a martyr is someone who, when faced with death or choosing against their faith, they choose their faith. Those two components are really important in the Christian tradition because that way of dying is like who? Jesus. Yes, so martyrdom in the Christian tradition is someone who dies the same death as Jesus. Today we will look at one of those martyrdom stories that introduces our companion for today. So around 177 CE, a group of Christians were targeted by a mob in the cities of Lyon and Vienne in Gaul. So that's modern-day France. You're like, oh, there's Lyon is there, and Vienne, like those are, yeah, those cities still exist, right? And, brought, and they were, so they were targeted, and they were brought before the Roman gover- governor on a variety of made-up charges. The letter from Lyon and Vienne tells the story of these Christians, most of whom are executed as martyrs. So this group of 48 Christians had little in common with one another besides their faith. They were Roman citizens, but others were not. Some were of high status and others the lowest, men, women, young, old, enslaved, and free. So today I want to introduce you to one of those martyrs. Her name was Blandina. So Blandina was a young enslaved woman. That combination of enslaved, young, and woman places Blandina at not just the bottom of the society, but like underneath the bottom of society. So low that she's not counted as human. We know from other clues in the text that she was probably around the age of 18 to 22, somewhere in there. She is rounded up with the other Christians, and they were taken to prison, tortured, and eventually killed. When confronted with the Roman authorities and torturers, Blandina confesses, speaks forth. This quote, I am Christian, and we do nothing wrong. The Roman powers that be threw all they had at Blandina, and yet she remained constant in this confession. We have the the picture of the Leon Arena we can put up. Yeah, so you can go see this today. It still exists where Blandina was killed. 
Her torturers marvel at the sight of her body broken and torn open and testified that she should have been dead long ago. The Roman torturers throw up their hands and give up. They do not have what it takes to break this young woman whom societally they don't even deem as a person, which is not reflecting really well on the Roman torturers, by the way. So Blandina doesn't just outlast her torturers, she defeats them. In the Roman Empire, an enslaved woman had no bodily or judicial integrity, no ability to demonstrate virtue, no position in society to offer or receive advocacy, and no access to the rights and privileges of family. But in this letter, Blandina gained status she was not granted and a family she was not allowed to have and experiences exodus, a reference to the deliverance of God from enslavement. Quote, Last of all, the blessed Blandina, like a well-born mother who has urged her children and sent them victorious to the king. And so the children here, just a note, is actually the other martyrs, not her actual children who has also herself suffered through each of her children's contests, was eager to join them, rejoicing and celebrating in her exodus, as though being called to a marriage feast and not being thrown to the beasts. So Blandina's martyrdom is understood as God's judgment upon and deliverance from her enslavers. It's not just about her being sold out for Jesus and like, it's actually... God's judgment upon and deliverance from her enslavers. So this ancient letter spends a lot of time with Blandina. We hear a lot about what the Romans did to her, and it is awful. The Romans were very creative and brutal in their methods of torture. And the author of this, but the author of this letter doesn't actually focus on that material as much as you would think. Most of the early Christian martyrdom stories don't belabor the suffering more than they have to. Just as the Gospels don't spend a lot of time describing Jesus' torture and crucifixion, we're basically given the bare bones details, and that's it. Partially because everyone knew what a crucifixion was like, and like, okay. So there were two reasons for this. They were already surrounded by this kind of death. Second, because torture and, and even the death is not the point. Jesus Christ's story is about redemption unto victory for us, and Blandina's story is about one of us experiencing and testifying to that victory. It is Blandina, this young enslaved woman, through whom Christ demonstrated that what appears worthless, unseemly, and despised to humans is deemed worthy of great honor by God on account of the God-directed love which is revealed by real power and not boasted of an appearance. That's from the letter. The stories of early Christian martyrs were about God in Christ as that person, that the one who is suffering, who is a target, who is the lowest, and that person, that person, experiencing cosmic and, system, and systemic justice in Christ. Christ took that form of a slave. God became worthless, unseemly, and despised. I want to read you another quote from this piece. It's amazing. Blandina, for her part, was hung on a piece of wood and offered as food for the beasts that were set upon her. 
As she hung there, she was seen in the form of a cross, and through her strenuous prayer provided the competitors with great encouragement. For in her contest, they saw with their external eyes their sister, the one who had been crucified on their behalf, so that she might persuade those who believe in him that everyone who suffers for the glory of Christ will always have communion with the living God. This small, weak, and despised woman had put on Christ, the unconquerable athlete, prevailing over the adversary through many rounds by her struggle, being wreathed with the crown of immortality. So instead of trembling in this arena while hanging from a post, Blandina prays and others witness her in the form of a cross. Those who saw her through their bodily eyes saw Blandina as Christ. Blandina enters the arena to be devoured, but instead she endures against the evil powers that be. Christ, as an enslaved young woman, validates Blandina's person, but also embodies judgment as, as her to judge those who enslave and those who brutalize. Because the martyr shares in Christ's death, they access the glory of Christ's victory over death in death. The letter doesn't emphasize an enslaved young woman's glorious and good pain for Jesus. No. Instead, it shows the way of Christ is deliverance from pain and justice for the pain experienced in the arena as well as a lifetime of painful experiences that she brought with her into that arena. God in Christ's suffering is the mechanism for the suffering person or community to experience the defeat of the power of Satan, healing of pain, deliverance from suffering, and the justice of God. Martyrdom texts do not seek to redeem pain. Blandina's story does not communicate redemptive pain, but Christ's redemption of pain for Blandina's freedom. The author of the letter is not interested in communicating martyrdom as unmitigated terror to be endured before one receives the reward, a kind of divine hazing, as it were. Instead, the glory of reward, the healing, the communion with God and with one another invades the arena. Christ voluntarily enters death's space and brought life in the form of his very presence and then resurrection. Thus, those who share in Christ's death do not experience death without the presence and the promise of resurrection life right there too. Eastern Orthodox theologian John Baer writes, In this way, freedom, rather than necessity, becomes the basis for a truly human existence in Christ. This is a new existence, beginning with an act of freedom, that of Christ voluntarily going to his passion, converting the use of death for all, and in this way, enabling us all to start over freely by following him. Blandina suffers as Christ, but as the glorious Christ. In other words, the author of the letter communicates that her sharing in Christ's suffering, the bone-breaking, tendon-tearing, disfiguring, disabling torture and execution on the cross, makes an actual experiential difference for her as the sufferer. In her book, The Disabled God, Toward a Liberatory Theology of Disability, Nancy Eisland writes, 
In the resurrection, Jesus Christ's body is not only his transfigured form that still embodies the reality of impaired hands, feet, and side. It also consists of the body whose life and unity come from the Holy Spirit active in our continuing history. In summoning, in summoning us to remembrance of his body and blood at the table, the disabled God calls us to liberating relationships with God, our bodies, and others. Blandina, as Christ, experiences in the suffering what Christ won through suffering. Blandina, as Christ, experiences in the suffering what Christ won through suffering. Blandina experiences the present circumstance, but by virtue of her sharing in Christ's suffering, she also experiences some of that glorious resurrection to come. Christ is politic. Let's go back to the passage. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Philippi was a Roman colony that was full of retired soldiers and known for its patriotic imperial nationalism. Naturally, Paul got into some trouble there <laughs> for proclaiming Jesus as Lord, as Lord instead of Caesar as Lord. Spicy, Paul. Spicy. So Paul sends a letter to the vibrant community at Philippi who knew what it was like to be imprisoned and to suffer and to live under the constant threat of execution. Paul is encouraged by their faithfulness and sees Christ at work in them and among them. Philippians is full of warmth and love and community during persecution and imprisonment and suffering. And in the face of the Roman powers that be, what kind of power does this little community of Christians in Philippi actually have? Practically speaking, their little community amounted to a rickety shack overshadowed by the vastness of the Colosseum. However, the early church is full of little communities like Philippi and those like Blandina and other martyrs who resist tyranny with their demonstration of virtue in the face of the brutality of the Roman powers that be. The martyrs are judged and found faithful, but the martyrs also judge the powers of evil. The letter from Lyon and Vienne assumes that the Roman powers that be are judged and will be judged for how Blandina is treated. Christ as Blandina in this text means that Christ attends to the specific concerns and context of an enslaved young woman. Thus, for Christ, it is necessary to pass judgment on the Romans for treating her as a thing and not as a person. While enslavement is not denounced in the letter specifically, an enslaved young woman experiencing exodus is not really a neutral stance. This letter portrays Blandina, the worthless, unseemly, and despised one, to be judge of her slaveholder mistress, the Roman powers that be, and the evil cosmic powers that be. There's a section about each one of those. Blandina as Christ and Christ as Blandina judges based on a new politic, the kingdom of God that is here and is coming. 
The implication is that Blandina's freedom is God's will, and he wants it done. I love that I'm speaking about her today, I'm so close to her feast day, June 2nd, sweet. Um, so the, I love this uh, new art that I saw uh, a couple days ago uh, for the celebration of her feast day. So this is the, the June 2nd feast day, um, is the day that the church globally um, celebrates her witness. Stories like that of Blandina contend that in Christ, the unsuitable becomes suitable. The worthless, unseemly, and despised are revealed as worthy, honorable, and priceless. And that these that are the last will be the first in God's kingdom. Every Christian's life is marked by the death of the old self and the birth of the new self. With citizenship in God's kingdom... And we must act accordingly. The early Christians passed stories around like Blandina's because seeing and experiencing Christ changes everything. God's glory in an enslaved young woman had ramifications for how one is to treat enslaved young women. Blandina wasn't noble or special because she suffered. The letter, the letter indicates that her nobility is present before she suffers. What society had already taken from her was an injustice, and here Christ is identified with those like her. Indeed, he comes for someone like her and others like her who are forced low in society. Theologian and pastor with autism, Lamar Hardwick, writes this, our struggle with disability is rooted in the adversarial relationship with the bodies that God has deemed worthy of becoming his temple. Disabled bodies are no less worthy of this honor. Jesus affirms them as his dwelling place. Disabled bodies may be different, with different challenges and different limitations, but in the end, it is our perspective about the world, about our bodies, and more specifically, disabled bodies that is abnormal. So that's specific to disability. But I want you to hear all of the other ways that we as humans sort of set hierarchies or set the way our society works. We just heard a highlight about a whole huge group of people who cannot move through our society, right? To see the brutalized, disabled, cruciform, and victorious Blandina is to see Christ. When the early Christians answered the question posed to Peter by Jesus Christ, it's in a few of the Gospels, but Matthew 16, I have up here. Who do you say that I am? The author of this letter presumes that one answer would be Blandina. When we answer Jesus' question when it is posed to us, what will our answer be? Who do you say that I am? Who is Christ among us now? Where is Christ among us now? The deemed worthless, unseemly, and despised that we cannot or refuse to see. Sidebar. So, at this point in a sermon is where the application comes in. And this is where I might start to give some examples of those who are deemed worthless, unseemly, and despised. Um, that we overlook and even harm further by our neglect and our stereotypes. 
I might even challenge us to pray and ask God to show us who those people are and to give us eyes to see. We'd pray, and then I would have planned out with Jess ahead of time to belt out, open the eyes of my heart, Lord, um, because I do love a good preacher, worship leader, like combo. It's, it's good. So that's a really fine end to a sermon. That's actually not where the Holy Spirit wanted me to go when I wrote this. I had it all mapped out, and the Holy Spirit's like, no. <laughs> awesome. So I will tell you, this was very annoying because I had it all planned out, and it, I just got stuck. Just stuck. I was like, no, it's supposed to go that way. No. Okay. All right, Holy Spirit, got it. So now we're going to rewind the tape. Again, realizing that many of you in this room may have heard about rewinding but have never actually physically rewound a tape. So I'm just, for, just out of curiosity, I mean, rewinding, okay, we get it. How many of you have actually rewound a, a VHS tape? Okay, all right, thank you. Huh. Now, who of you has rewound an 8-track? Hey! All right, okay. So, <laughs> when early Christians answered the question, posed by, to Peter by Jesus Christ, who do you say that I am? The author of this letter presumes that one answer would be Blandina. When we answer the question that Jesus poses to us, what will our answer be? Who do you say that I am? Who is Christ among us now? Where is Christ among us, the deemed worthless, unseemly, and despised that we cannot or refuse to see? Christ is here, right now, through the Holy Spirit. But maybe, for whatever reason, he's really hard for you to see. Maybe you don't want to see Christ, or feel like you can't, or you shouldn't, because you feel worthless, unseemly, or despised. You are not worthless. Your voice your body, your presence, your contributions are of value. The thing that person said that tore into your confidence, that vibe of what are you doing here that you got when you walked into that room, that date that made you feel like no one would ever want you like you want to be wanted, that idea you had at work that was shot down, you are not worthless. You are not unseemly. You fit. You belong. You are not too loud or too weird or too awkward or too slow or too quiet or too broken or too much. You will miss a social cue. You will try and fail to understand an expectation. You will try to impress and only be embarrassed. Something physical about you might stand out and has been cause for ridicule because you don't fit. Sometimes your brain wants you to be in bed and sad and you wonder how others seem to function in ways you can't. Sometimes you perseverate, running situations over and over and over and over and you can't let past conversations rest or you can't seem to get the rehearsal of a future conversation right, but you are not unseemly, and you are not despised, 
You are not worthy of contempt. Your gender, your race, your disability, your sexuality, your socioeconomic status, your whatever. You are not to be despised. But what if you've done terrible things? Perhaps you think you are worth despising for what you have done or failed to do. You think you're unlovable. You avoid. You hide. But you are not worthy of contempt. You are not despised. But you hear it and you believe it, that you are worthless, unseemly, and despised. And this is where my Pentecostal is going to come out, so just fair warning. Those are lies from the pit of hell. Those lies are the playbook of the enemy. It's the oldest and most effective trick that he's got to tell us that we are not enough and also that we are too much. Lies. You are created in the image of God. And God himself showed up and took on the form of the lowest of the lowest of the low because whatever other humans or the devil can say about us, it is not the fundamental truth of us. God took the form of a slave because a human being a slave is a lie from the pit of hell that needed to be trampled under his heel. In taking the form of a slave, God grabbed every lie about humans that the enemy can throw at us, about our inherent worth, and yanked them up on that cross with him. But oh, he wasn't done. He took one look at shame that eats our souls, and he scorned it. Made a mockery of it and said, nope, not today, shame. And during Holy Saturday, he pursued those lies all the way into death itself to lead an exodus, setting free those captives and every captive to shame and lies since. And on that cross, God died. And in dying, he took with him that shame, those lies, and death itself and robbed them of their victory. God is always there in the deepest dark, because God's been there. And he refuses to let the shame and the lies flourish. He shows up in the dark, in the lowest places, the places where we think God has no business being, and he plants himself, life right there in the middle of death, so that not only in Blandi is Blandina, a young, enslaved, abused, weak, exploited woman included in God's kingdom, but she is witness to redemption, freedom, and justice. And there are so many Blandinas. There are so many people who suffer in silence, who are lost in the dark, who the world takes no notice of, who are not named, who are deemed worthless, unseemly, and despised. So many stories. And Christ is with every single one. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But here's the deal. God's glory comes for us. Came for us and comes for us still. In the darkest place, God's glory lights up the darkness, looks you straight in the face and says, look at me, I am here. 
Y'all could go deep in that darkness. But there's no pit where God cannot find you. And then perhaps Christ follows that up with, and you found love in a hopeless place. Because sometimes God quotes, quotes Rihanna. So hear the good news, my friends. Hear the good news. For God so loved the world, so loved you, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. You are why he came, and you are so loved. You are the joy set before him. You are why he endured the cross and took on that shame. You are also why he will come again. You are why he will make all things right. You are worth God's very life. You are God's great joy. You are God's great love.